Greetings, friends, and welcome to this episode of the Communication Guru Podcast, where we believe it is not always what you say, but how you say it that matters the most. I'm your host, Tim McMurtry, president and CEO of Tim McMurtry International LLC, a business consultancy specializing in personal development and training, government and public affairs, along with corporate and community relations. I'm delighted to have you join us and I thank you for your listenership and viewership of this show. As you know, our aim on this platform is to discuss nuances and insights relative to the communication continuum to help you maximize the impact and results of effective communication within your own various spheres of influence, be it your business, your relationships, and or your workplace. We're here to help you become a top-notch communicator. So be sure to like, share, and subscribe to this podcast so you can be notified when new episodes are released and are available for consumption. Today, we're going to continue on in some subject matter that I brought up last episode and really talking about among the many socioeconomic ramifications that have emerged during the COVID-19 pandemic, along with the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd by the knee of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, has been a clarion call for deliberate efforts to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion across many environments and business sectors, along with this notion of critical race theory. So last episode, I got a chance to go into a little bit of a deep dive on the diversity, equity, and inclusion piece. I wasn't able to jump into the critical race theory discussion, but in any event, all of these things, as sensitive as they are, can be navigated thoroughly and effectively with tangible results through effective communication. And that's really the nature of what we want to discuss today when we pick up this critical race theory piece. Now, diversity, equity, and inclusion, given the history of America, has been a bit of a challenge. It didn't happen in a vacuum, didn't happen by osmosis, but there are some reasons for this. Race has been interwoven into the fabric of America, and it's not about whether we like it or not. That's just how it has been. I went into some detail about some of the things that led us to where we are, not for the purpose of bringing out a mallet and beating it over anybody's head with it, but really just to pinpoint and level set the starting line from where all of us can start from so that we can see the gist, I should say, of why diversity, equity, and inclusion matters are important. And even in this increasingly divisive conversation about critical race theory. Now, suffice it to say that race has been an issue in America. There have been some adverse impacts that black people in particular have had to suffer through because of them being black. So aside from the big stuff like slavery and Jim Crow laws and legalized segregation and civil rights movement, and all of that, there have been other things that have gone on as well, such as redlining. Redlining is when Black people would have their neighborhoods devalued as the government, as brokers, and real estate professionals worked in collusion one with another to disproportionately negatively affect the housing values of black people. In addition to that, there were certain neighborhoods that black people couldn't live in because they were black. 
And when there was some sort of breakthrough, the black person persevered with their family. They were able to demonstrate that they were people of quality. They were people of value, like values of individuals living in these different neighborhoods. And they had the financial means to move to these neighborhoods. You had what was called white flight. That was when white people, when a black person moved in the neighborhood, put their houses up for sale and they moved out. Now, that was race related. That's all we're saying. So all we're saying is, is that race has been an issue. We just don't want it to have to be an issue moving forward. That's what this is all about. And I think that the critical race theory, in some regards, speaks to this. But I think part of the challenge that people have is that there's this level of extremism that's associated with it that turns some people off. Now, I'm not a proponent of critical race theory. I am a proponent that any education that is taught at any level, K through 12, secondary, college, adult, whatever level you want to be on, that the racial dynamics ought not be whitewashed and watered down, but really spoken to in truth as things really have been, as things really were. Why? Because we want to be able to have a solid foundation that's built on truth. Now, some of the truth is the ugly truth, and it's difficult to hear about and difficult to discuss, but just because it might be difficult for some to discuss and hear about should not make it ineligible for discussion, though, because we're trying to get to a remedy. And sometimes you have to go through certain paths to be able to get to the end game that you're looking for. So without rehashing all the things I talked about relative to diversity, equity, and inclusion on last show, you can go back and check that out at the Communication Guru podcast. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about this critical race theory because I think from the standpoint of being able to include racial dynamics and how race has played a role in our institutional structural and systemic methodology and philosophical ideologies of how we do things, I think that race should be there. Whether it's under the guise of critical race theory or uka-juka or simply American history, that's for someone else to decide. But race should be part of the discussion because it's part of our everyday lives still. One example of which is recently when the gentleman, I think his name was Chris Cooper, was out bird watching, Harvard educated man, African American, out watching some birds. Now, I'm not a bird watcher, but I've watched MMA fights and stuff before. I don't think bird watchers are MMA fighters. So, what I'm saying is that doesn't seem to be super duper threatening to me on his face watching some birds. And he was in there, and there was a, another lady, I think her name was Amy Cooper, who happened to be a white. Woman, And that's not to say all white people are bad. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying race has played a role and there has been some white you know, foulness toward black people. And what we're trying to do in this critical race theory is talk about how that's contributed, not for the sake of just beating anybody down, but for the sake of, hey, if this has happened in the past, what kind of things can we do so that this does not continue, so that race does not become or is or continues as big of an issue as it clearly has been in the past. So this guy was at New York, I think Central Park in New York, watching some birds. And there's some rules there because it's an ecological system there that calls for all dogs, your animals, the dogs, to be on a leash because otherwise they'll be jumping all around, disturbing the habitat. So this lady had her dog not on the leash. 
And this guy, African-American guy, said, ma'am, your dog needs to be on the leash. I ain't trying to interrupt your little fun and all, but there are rules of engagement here. And instead of her saying, oh, I missed that sign, or I didn't know, or thanks for bringing that to my attention, I'll get right on that because we're all in this together trying to enjoy the birds and not disturb their habitat. Instead of doing that, she went immediately berserk and tried to weaponize his race. She threatened him, hey, you don't tell me what to do. My dog can do what they want to do. As a matter of fact, I'm going to call the police on you and tell them that, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not saying it verbatim, but paraphrasing, she used these words, paraphrasing. I'm going to tell them that an African-American man is threatening me. Now, she didn't just say, I'm going to tell them a man or a person. She deliberately added that African-American part in there. Why? Because in America, race has mattered. And that was designed to elicit a response from law enforcement that would be punitive to the African-American guy. It wasn't enough that he was just a guy. It wasn't enough that he was just a person. The African-American piece. And that really is why critical race theory is critical or race in America, because it has been. Now, if you don't use critical race theory, cool. Don't not talk about race, though, when you talk about systems, because she was trying to tap into a system that she knew was disproportionately negatively impactful toward black people. And she was trying to use that system against my man who was watching birds. And she was the one that was breaking the law, not him. Yeah. How you like them apples? So, Let's get into this because race needs to be talked about because race has been foul like that. And that's just one anecdote, just one of millions that have gone on. So there is this college, Hillsdale College. They have this publication. It's Imprimus is their publication. They talk about different things. And they just had, I'm just going to read from a brief summary of what they talked about just to give you some backdrop of what critical race theory is. We hear about it. We hear about it in sound bites. Critical race theory and, you know, state legislatures across the country are saying that it's like reverse discrimination and is prematurely prejudicial toward different groups. This is a summary of what it is based on Hillsdale College's interpretation. It wants to give you a little backdrop. So I'm going to share just some of this first before we get into this, just so you can level set what we're talking about. It says, in explaining critical race theory, it helps to begin with the brief history of Marxism. Originally, the Marxist left built its political program on the theory of class conflict. Marx believed that the primary characteristic of industrial societies was the imbalance of power between capitalists and workers. The solution to that imbalance, according to Marx, was revolution. The workers would eventually gain consciousness of their plight, seize the means of production, overthrow the capitalist class, and usher in a new socialist society. So there's this revolutionary uprising, get them and get them type deal that's kind of baked into the critical race theory philosophy background that has some people saying, hold on, man, y'all going a little bit too hard with that. Going on, it says, during the 20th century, a number of regimes underwent Marxist-style revolutions, and each ended in disaster. This is a very key point. Dig this. Socialist governments in the Soviet Union, China, Cambodia, Cuba, and elsewhere racked up a body count of nearly 100 million people of their own people. They are remembered for their gulags, show trials, executions, and mass starvations. In practice, Marxist ideas unleashed 
man's darkest brutalities. Now, that was after slavery. So before Marx came on the scene, slavery was foul learning that. This is just some other atrocities that have been recognized as atrocities, which means that there is a capacity to understand and have empathy for atrocities and want to do something to remedy that. That's getting into the race piece. Well, it's so much. Let me just stick to the point I'm trying to make. So last little piece of this, this is just background information to get into critical race theory because it was an extension of a philosophy from Karl Marx, who was a German philosopher, a social theorist, economist, historian, political theorist, I should say, who has a pretty big following that has seeped into academia. By the mid-1960s, Marxist intellectuals in the West had begun to acknowledge these failures. They recoiled at revelations of Soviet atrocities and came to realize that workers' revolutions would never occur in Western Europe or the United States, where there were large middle classes and rapidly improving standards of living. Americans in particular had never developed a sense of class consciousness or class division. Most Americans believed in the American dream, the idea that they could transcend their origins through education, hard work, and good citizenship. So they went from that, the working class, to the race piece. Now, the error, I think, is that they tried to put these revolutionary ideologies into this. Whereas they could have just left it as American history. You don't have to try and philosophize about nothing. Talk about what happened. Talk about how it was baked into how things have gone and work to remedy it. You know, It's just American history. Just stop not including everything. Make it all inclusive. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's address it. So critical race theory then, also coming from Hillsdale College, the imprimis their newsletter, critical race theory is an academic discipline formulated in the 1990s, built on the intellectual framework of identity-based Marxism. Relegated for many years to universities and obscure academic journals over the past decade, it has increasingly become the default ideology in our public institutions. It has been injected into government agencies, public school systems, teacher training programs, and corporate human resources departments in the form of diversity training programs, human resources modules, public policy frameworks, and social curricula. Now, the challenge even with that framing of it makes it seem like anything having to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion is this critical race theory, is this Marxist stuff, is this philosophical vomit. And that's not really what we're trying to drive. What we're trying to drive is how do we get equity, diversity, and inclusion with diverse populations in our society better? We ain't got to use critical race theory because that's going to be polarizing and it's going to make some people immediately turn it off. But let's explore some of the things that we have in our society to see why we need to take into account culture and cultural differences. When I was younger, we had this game about, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old called Rumble Fumble. Now, people have different cultural norms that are based on race, okay? This, again, just one anecdote. Now, everybody probably has a story. You might even have some people of different races. Well, hey, I had a person of a different race, did something mean to me, and I'm not tripping. But that's one isolated incident that's not connected to a history and legacy going back to 1619 of your people being done a certain kind of a way. That's the difference between when a black person talks about how they've been done and the next person. Nobody was burning crosses in your family's yards. 
Nobody was lynching your family. If you ain't black, you didn't have the same atrocities that black people have suffered. So stop it with that. Well, well, this happened. Hush. Okay? That's part of the problem. You can't keep it real just to stick with this particular topic. You got animal rights. When people talk about animal rights, people don't say, well, all animals matter. Come on now. Let's just stick to the topic. We're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in this particular instance, most of the pushback comes from, we don't want to hear anything about black people being mistreated. But that has been the story since 1619, and we're looking to remedy that. So that won't be the story when we get to 2039. Anyway, race has affected culture. So we're playing Rumble Fumble. I'm 10 years old, 10 or 11 years old. Rumble Fumble, for those of you all who don't know, is when you take a Nerf football or some football, some pigskin, you throw it up in the air, and you're either in a park or you're playing across a couple of different yards that are contiguous or right next door to each other, and you throw the ball up, somebody grabs the ball, and they run. And they just run and run and run and run and run until they get tackled. Now, you can also have sometimes rest spots which serve as like mini touchdowns. So you got this goalpost or this driveway. If you can get to that driveway, you get a chance to rest and then run back out. That's home base. Nobody can touch you when you're on home base. And so we're playing this, and I'm amongst these folks. My family had moved at this particular time uh, recently, within the past three years or so, to a predominantly white neighborhood. We were only one of maybe two black families within a mile radius in every direction. So we were playing Rumble Fumble, made friends with some of the, you know, kids. You know, I'm the only black guy there, and we're playing Rumble Fumble, doing our thing. And so this is how culture, race culture. So this guy named Daryl, one of our friends, he got the ball, and we were kind of tackling him, and he was trying to be tough, not going down right away. And so we were all trying to tackle him. Then one of the white kids, one of my white friends, Jimmy was his name, he said, Nigger Pile! He screamed that nigger pile as we were tackling Daryl. And at first, I didn't even catch it. I'm playing with my friend. I'm just playing. And one by one, I was the only black kid there. All the other kids were white. They all like stopped in their tracks. It took me a few seconds to kind of catch what was going on. And they were like, Tim, hey, sorry, dude, dude. And Jimmy was like, by this time, he was like, he started crying. Yeah, I'm so sorry. That is me. But the phrase was nigger pile. Now, we're 10 or 11 years old, man. Where does that come from? That's race-related cultural norms is where it came from. So race is an issue. Nigger pile ain't talking about everybody. Black lives matter. All lives matter. This ain't talking about all lives. This is talking about black folks. Pile. This ain't talking about blue lives or any other lives. This is, he said nigger pile. He didn't say all lives pile. So there are some things that are specific to specific races that we have to deal with and dismantle. And they're part of the cult. We're 10 or 11 years old, man. We ain't in no boardroom. We're playing Rumble Fumble. We're playing. And it seeped into the culture of playing. Come on, man. It's real. It's real. Robert Smith, I think is his name, is an African-American billionaire. Okay? Billionaire. Recently, he made the news because he paid off the student loan debt of the entire graduating class of a recent class of Morehouse College, which is a predominantly black college, HBCU, for men in Atlanta, Georgia. 
And I think it was the 2019 or 2020, maybe 2019 class. I think it was before COVID, 2019 class. He just paid them all off. So he got a lot of publicity and stuff like that. And so I was doing just some research on him because I had never heard of him before this particular instance. And he was a billionaire. And there was an article, I believe, in Forbes or Fortune magazine where he was talking about his challenges. Being an African-American man, he drives a nice car, how many times he's been stopped by the police, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing he said in that article really was like, wow, talking about race. I'm just, and the point I'm trying to make here is just race is an issue. I'm just trying to help us make it not an issue. But let's at least acknowledge that it is because some people think it's not an issue. I'm just giving you examples of, yes, it is because it was an issue here. He was out to eat. Now, he's a billionaire in the financial services sector, hedge funds and all that kind of stuff. He went out to dinner with a group of colleagues. Again, he was the only black guy there. And, you know, again, not an issue for him. Hey, I'm, I'm cool. I ain't tripping on race. I'm, hey, we don't try to play the race car. We wish the car wouldn't be blown away. We play it because the deck is always before us. So as he's doing his thing, man, they go out to dinner, him and his white other colleagues of his. And he goes after the meal. He grabs the check. After the waiter left, said, okay, you guys done anything? I oh, know we're done. I'll take the check. He grabs the little casing that the check comes in. And one of his colleagues, man, says, what are you doing? He said, I'm picking up the tab. Like, no, I'll get it. He's like, no, no, I got it, man. I I got the means. I got you covered. It's on me. It's all good. A normal kind of thing. I'm sure many of you picked up the tab. I had the tab picked up for you before and all this. You know, thank you. Most people are good looking out. Appreciate it. The guy then said, and I'm only bringing this up because race matters. In some instances, it doesn't have to, but. Too often it comes up. The guy says, no, I can't have a black man pay for my meal. Hey, he said that happened in like 2016. Not the 1800s. It was in contemporary society. Check this out. Amongst millionaires and billionaires, which means that your socioeconomic strata does not exempt you from potential racial dynamics. So with all that said, our public school systems, and this is almost like a public service announcement now, our public school systems need to be able to teach American history and the racial ramifications. Talk about segregation. Talk about Jim Crow. Talk about lynchings. Talk about systemic racism, where you have disproportionate numbers of different people, African-Americans in this case, that are incarcerated. And talk about why. They don't commit more crimes than any other people. They just get harsher penalties. When you have a non-black person and a black person commit the same crime, the black person typically gets a harsher penalty. That's systemic racism. You don't have to call it critical race theory. It's racial something. So whatever you want to call it, call it that. Whatever you don't want to call it, don't call it that. But it's got to have race in there somewhere because that's real. Okay? So we want to be able to address those things to be able to remedy them. Racial issues, racial animosity is taught. It's taught. And because it's taught, there has to be some counter to untaught it (laughs) or to teach something different. I'm going to wrap this up with this. Suffice it to say that our education system has to talk about the systemic institutional role Okay, that race has played 
in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the Brown versus Board of Education decision came out in the 50s, I believe. In the 1950s, 1954, I believe. And that said that separate but equal is not the same. You have to have equality in the education system. Same books, same curriculum, same quality of education. You can't have this group over there, that group over there, and expect things to be quality or equal, separate but equal. You can't have equality if they're separate like that. So the rule was black kids were able to go to school with white kids. Up until this point, they couldn't. Again, that's racial. Here in Milwaukee, even after that ruling, our schools didn't become integrated until 1976 from a ruling from a judge, Judge Reynolds, I believe it was, a full 22 years later. So if race was not an issue, why did it take 22 years for our local community to comply with a federal law? Because race mattered. Now, in every society, they have what you call seven mountains. Seven mountains are pillars of society that everybody adheres to. These are the drivers. These are the influencers of a society. And the influence can be disproportionate based on who's leading these particular mountains or areas. There's called a disproportionate power in remnant. Remnant being a small count of a larger whole. A good example would be if you're on an airplane, I'm sure many of you have flown before, you're on an airplane and whether you're flying coach or first class or business class or what have you, you can be on a 300 passenger plane, 200 passenger plane, no matter what your stature is, CEO, pastor, bishop, regular citizen, dad, mom, father, whatever your status is, and wherever you're sitting on that plane, you're not more important than those two people in that cockpit, those pilots. So even though you're amongst 300 other passengers, the two most important people on that plane are those pilots. They have a disproportionate amount of power. So that's a disproportionate power remnant. That remnant of them two got more power than anybody else on that plane. I don't care if you a private jet flying joker and you worth $295 billion. If you ain't the pilot, you ain't the most important person on that planet. So in these seven mountains, which are family, religion, education, arts and entertainment, business, government, and media, in those seven, how they go will determine how society goes. And in those areas, the whole piece about diversity, equity, and inclusion is important. When we look at religion, there's a, a saying that, was it 10 o'clock on Sundays is the most segregated time in America? Because you got black churches, you got white churches. So even in religion, you got some diversity, equity, and inclusion improvement that's needed. Talking about families. Talking about the disproportionate impact the socioeconomic monies, net worth. There's vast disparities between black families, white families. You talk about education. Need I say more? 75% of the black boys in California, state of California, are reading below proficiency levels. 75%. And in many urban areas across America, that is the case. And so we look at the educational attainment, access disparities, and diversity, equity, and inclusion can be used here too. Then you have arts and entertainment. You have many artists over the years that have had their 
creativity stolen, misappropriated, black artists not getting compensated for their art, their craft, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mean, CEOs of companies, record executives, royalties, owning of masters, the recording stuff, publishing. Uh-huh. A few more. Business. Talk about business. People say, well, hey, affirmative action, that's taking jobs away from qualified people, giving them to unqualified people. That wasn't the purpose of affirmative action. Affirmative action was to say, hey, man, we got some qualified people of color that never get a chance. Never. Because people that's doing the hiring might not look like them. And as soon as they see them, uh, to underscore this, currently in 2021, affirmative action is making so much ground. Out of the 500, Fortune 500 companies, you got five black CEOs. Out of 500. Check this out. Fortune 500 began in 1955. Since 1955 to 2021, there have been a total of 19 black CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. <laughs> All I'm saying is that the diversity, equity, and inclusion quotient can stand some improvement. Amen? Amen. Government. We've had, what, 45, 46 presidents? We had one, one, one who was black and half white, so we ain't had a full black one yet, but just one. And 45 other ones, even governors. I think Douglas Wilder became the first African-American governor in the history of the United States back in the 90s in Virginia. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then finally, the media. How many black-owned media outlets do we have? When we talk about the major news outlets, how many talking heads do we see on television and the major news channels, cable news? Not a whole lot. So my point is, is that our society has some room for improvement with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And as it relates to the critical race theory, even if you don't take that full stock and barrel because it has some extremist measures to it, okay, throw that in the garbage. However, as part of American history training, there are racial components there, and there have been some adverse impacts based on race that cannot be ignored. Be sure to include those in the discussion is all I'm advocating for. And that can be done through effective communication, starting first with enough guts to talk about it. Number two, to discuss it in a way that has an equilibrium of truth and empathy. It doesn't have to be a conflict and all agitated. It just can be a level-headed, even-keeled discussion, but it has to be there. And then number three, it has to be done on a consistent, persistent basis so that every child, every person in education at least gets access to what the truth is and that shouldn't be limited to one's personal interpretation of what truth is, but more so a reflection of what has happened in history without whitewashing it, without omitting certain things, or without putting a more favorable spin on something when it wasn't favorable. We're just trying to keep it 100. With that, I'm going to wrap up today's show. Man, just a lot of good stuff out here. And we have a great opportunity to move things forward based on truth. 
So with that, thanks so much for listening today. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to the Communication Guru Podcast. Again, the Communication Guru Podcast. The Communication Guru Podcast. Also be on the lookout for my morning Timspiration vlogs. These are inspirational, insightful tidbits that are designed to be win behind your sales during the week. I usually kick those out on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Just sometimes you be going through a little something, something, and you need an attaboy or not a girl. That's what these are. Tidbits, some life food for you to help you live your best life. Living my life like it's golden, golden. Living my life like it's golden. You got that piece. Then you have, finally, if you have a communication issue that you would like to, you know, address and need some assistance with, feel free to drop me a line at tim at timmcmurtryinternational.com, tim at timmcmurtryinternational.com with kind of a brief description of what you got going on. And we'll hop on a free 15, 20-minute discovery call to find out how I may be able to best help you with that issue. So that said, I hope you found this insightful and helpful. And until next time, my friend, blessing and increase to you. 